Welcome to the Foot School Podcast. In this episode, Head of Lower School, Chrissy Katchney, and School Counselor, Kasuth Bradford, share insight into how parents and educators can work to promote resilience in children. So I'd like for you to take one second and just turn to someone sitting next to you or near you and quickly just discuss for a minute amongst yourselves, how would you define resilience? I'm going to do a quick 30 seconds and then we're going to rein you back in. I can talk to you. All right, we're going to come back together now. This is the good stuff. Okay, we're going to come back. I know that was really quick and not nearly long enough, but I promise we'll have more time to sort of peel back the layers of resilience. Would anyone like to share real quickly something that they either learned from the person that they shared in terms of defining resilience or something that they feel they would like to pass along to others uh, in how they define resilience? There's no wrong answer here. Uh, the ability to bounce back from a challenge and grow from that. Okay. Anyone else? Okay. We'll dive in. Um, so you're, that was exactly where we are looking ahead in our conversation today. The ability to adapt well to adversity um, and that idea of how we as adults in our lifetime have had experiences that have helped us to become resilient in different situations and how we can instill that in our children. Um, there is, um, interestingly enough, a, a significant body of research that has been done in this area, um, I'd say in the last 13 to 15 years. A lot of it has to center on sort of this idea that as a culture and society, we are becoming much more anxious. We're becoming much more anxious as an adult population and that is then in turn trickling down to our children and our students. And so what can we do about that? The research, interestingly enough, has focused on sort of the overarching parent to child connection. Um, and then there's been some interesting research done in different ways and how it affects different genders, how it affects boys and how it affects girls. Um, what they have found across um, research that's been done is that there's this idea that from a young age, children do begin to display this sort of race to the top mentality. And this one specifically, there is a correlation with sort of the tone that parents set or the adults set in their lives. Um, that in this particular research that the students and the children had internalized their parents' emphasis on achievement so much that if they didn't feel stressed, they took that as an indication that they weren't working hard enough. Um, and so this idea that as a culture we're starting to like build this phenomenon where we constantly have to be busy, we constantly have to have hectic schedules, and if we're not, and things are quiet and calm, then we're not actually being productive. On the positive side, the research is starting to help us also look at how can we improve and how can we change this trend. So they've identified two anecdotes or two sort of, sort of ways to sort of mitigate this kind of stress. And one being activities that give a sense of purpose, such as challenge yourself to complete a ropes course, um, and mentoring relationships that foster personal growth. So there is a huge interconnection between uh, de-escalating sort of anxiety in young children and having both positive and healthy peer relationships and peer uh, and relationships with adults as well. And then there's this other idea that is just the fact that a lot of what's stressing kids out is not going to go away. So it, it's just the nature of having, you know, technology at our fingertips increases the pace, 
Social media definitely plays a role into this. And the fact that we have to start looking at how we are equipping our children to be more resilient because in the end we know that this is just the way society and our trend is moving. And, and um, I'll even add to that, if I, I imagine most of you all are familiar with Yale's Anxiety Clinic, or if you're not, they have a pretty significant anxiety clinic, and a majority of their work now is uh, around apparent uh, over-accommodation. And so they won't even really work with the children anymore. They're basically saying what we need to do is we need to give parents the tools to recognize that their children have the capacity to move through this anxiety, and we just have to be able to uh, create uh, circumstances and a context that gives them the space to do that. And our instinct is often to uh, accommodate it, to alleviate that anxiety as quickly as we can because it's, you know, it's hard to see your, your child in uh, pain or distraught um, and struggling. But they literally um, have shifted their whole programming to just focus on that. So I think that's very telling to what Chrissy's sharing around this, this piece around the role that we as parents play um, around having our children kind of move through adversity. So as we shift into this idea that today we want to actually talk about what resilience is, and how we define it here at FOOT, and the things that we're doing as a community to build resilient children, um, I wanted to share sort of an outline of how we look at the components of resilience. So the idea of having a growth mindset, helping children have a sense of purpose, being creative, helping promote self-care, and having a positive, strong relationships. Um, you know, I think those of you who have been in the community a little while know that having a growth mindset or that idea of growth versus fixed mindset is a big part of the lens that's been put over our curriculum in a lot of ways um, and a lot of um, also a lens over the layer of the work that the faculty and the administration are doing um, and it's this idea that it's you know a combination of being able to be flexible and accepting change and also when you're looking at problem solving I love to think about some of the work that Heather Zetterberg's doing in math for example and this idea that Traditionally, math was just sort of you learn the rote facts and you learn how to solve the problems. Um, and those of you, I know some in third grade and some of the other grades, you may be seeing some of the types of questions that are coming home as part of your child's homework. And it's this idea that you're not just going to look at it and find a direct path to the answer, that there's going to be some icky kind of feelings about, like, I don't totally know how to solve this. And there may be multiple ways to solve this. So that idea of, in, in, instilling this idea of thinking flexibly in our students and how we can help them to be resilient in problem solving and looking at it both in the academic sense um, and then also looking at it as young as our kindergartners doing their outdoor education program and the, the guidance that the teachers are doing. They're, they're putting them in tricky situations, not that they're setting them up for failure, but they're making them feel icky a little bit and having them work through navigating stuff that isn't going to be so obvious and trying to help them to learn that I like to think of it as we put up scaffolding for our students to take risks in a way that allows them to feel success, but not always know that they're going to reach that sex success when they start in the beginning. Helping children have a sense of purpose, I think that's one of the things that here at Foot we do extremely well from our youngest students all the way up through our ninth graders and sort of this idea that students have a lot of responsibility, whether on campus, in their classroom, um, or you know, it can be even just the subtle ways that they feel independent when they're walking from their class to PE in fourth and fifth grade and they're unsupervised as they think they are. Um, but it kind of helps them feel like, you know what, I, this is my role, this is what I do and I'm building my independence and all of that plays into it. I think the creative piece at foot speaks for itself. <laughs> Everything from the drama program from when we're young to our um, visual arts programming and to sort of just the way that we look at learning in general. 
The promoting self-care, that is one that I think is one of those partnership things, hand in hand. A lot of times when you think about the promoting self-care piece of things from the school side of things, um, you know, we're helping our students in third, fourth, and fifth grade learn independently how to manage time with homework. Um, that's a big deal, and helping them to sort of understand how that plays into taking care of oneself. And then I think even with our youngest children, the homeschool connection, whether it's bringing home your orange folder and building that independence, the self-care piece we're going to come back to a little bit later too as we're talking about the home component because that's also some of the easiest things you can do at home with your children in terms of talking about what's a reasonable bedtime. And obviously you're not going to give your child carte blanche to sort of identify that they should go to bed at 9.30 at night necessarily as a kindergartner, but that idea that having those conversations and making them aware of when they feel tired and what does it mean to feel rested and how do I fall asleep and all of those sort of nuances to just sort of becoming an independent person, but that internally helps them to feel like they have that ability to sort of take ownership how they care and how they feel. Um, along with that also ties in sort of eating habits and those kinds of things that we can come back to as well. And then the having positive and strong relationships that can go, um, actually I'm going to use that as a means to sort of toss things over to Kasuth a little bit because one of the things that is a big component of sort of that relationship piece is starting sort of with the relationships at home and the modeling that we set as adults for our children in terms of going back to my earlier statement that we really set a tone for how our children sort of get a sense of that anxious, that sort of day-to-day -day feeling and what we sort of sort of transfer onto them just from our own crazy lives. Kasuth and I were even joking this morning as we walked in. I walked in and I was like, oh my goodness, the preschool teachers weren't there at drop-off this morning and my son was all like up in arms because he didn't know the adult taking him and then here I am all frazzled because of it. So it's sort of like that domino effect and I walked in saying, you know, here's a perfect example of sort of like it, it's just life today and it's life in the moment and reminding myself to center where I am and not transferring sort of my nervous energy because I'm running from campus to campus in the morning. Um, and so it kind of all plays into it. Yes, right. and, and so as um, Chrissy was saying, I'm actually coming to book them. Something we've been just started at Foot is um, the Ruler Program, which is really just a social emotional learning program out of Yale. Um, and the idea is really just to have some common language across the school around how we um, understand ourselves and, and are attuned to our internal states and how we engage the community around us. And so, you know, obviously that's something that's been super important to foot for many, many years. Um, but we realized that each teacher kind of did their own thing and I think they all did their, their thing quite creatively and interestingly, but we felt like it'd be valuable to have a common language and everyone kind of on the same page and, and, and doing similar and, and having just kind of similar understanding uh, and exposing our children to kind of that similar consistent uh, message around uh, social emotional learning and emotional intelligence. And one component of that is this idea of emotional contagion. And when you think about this, it's the idea that um, we always think of you know, viruses and sicknesses being contagious, but there's some interesting research that talks about how emotions are contagious as well. And it's from that kind of mirroring concept. And so um, to that idea of like positive and strong relationships, it, it's so important that we as adults recognize how much our um, kind of emotional states impact our children. Um, the other day I was doing uh, a presentation of the Ruler Program to our maintenance crew. And that morning, I had, um, my wife had left a glass on the table in our room and uh, we have two cats that often go in there and get in glasses. One of them likes to play with glasses for some strange reason. And he knocked over her glass and broke it. 
And I was just so mad because it was like the third glass she had left in the room. And I was just like, come on, how could you not remember it's in there, da, da, da. And I went downstairs and I was just like, you know, just, you could tell I was obviously upset with her. And she was in a, trying to fight, you know, stay in a good space. And, and it eventually kind of wore on her. And, you know, she kind of, her, her mood shifted. And before you know it, our, our daughter, Violet, you know, she started being a little short with her. And then she unraveled because, you know, she needs Michelle to kind of ground her. And at one point I was sitting there thinking like, I know I did this. And it was like, <laughs> it was all on me, but I was like so determined. I was like, I, you know, I have a right to be angry and she should have fixed it. But it was just so fascinating because, I, you know, I just saw it all unfold between her mood shift to her daughter's mood shift. And I tried to clean it up at the end, but, you know, at that point it was probably too late and the damage was done. But um, did it you was clean just, up the glass? Or the I cleaned up the glass. Yes, I did. But actually I left some. I did leave some, I have to say. I got a few pieces and then I was like, you have to handle that. Um, but, um, but it was one of those moments, right, that were just, it was very humbling in that sense because I saw it unfold, I couldn't quite stop myself, I didn't feel like I needed, I, I deserved not to stop myself, and um, <laughs> it, it, it made no sense, but I think it just speaks to, you know, um, you know we're, we're human and uh, sometimes emotions get the best of us. Um, but with that being said, um, I'm going to do something that's a little strange, but I'm going to read you all a book, and it's a K through 2 book. And it came to fruition, the idea came to fruition because there's a group that we have, um, F-Stand, that is for, uh, upper, for middle school students, some 7th, 8th, and ninth grade students to work around kind of um, school climate and how we you know, treat each other as, as, as students and um, address issues that are pertinent to what they're experiencing, it be an implicit bias or, or um, you know, issues around uh, gender or, or, or uh, gender identity and things of that nature. And one of the activities that the students decided they want to do was to read to the lower school students about issues that they had been kind of dealing with or that they were thinking about when they were their age. So, you know, we did some brainstorming and said, hey, you know, let's think about things that you were thinking about when you were a kid and when you were in first, second, and third grade, and let's try to find some books in the library that speak to that, and then you all can read, you know, to these uh, kindergarten, first grader, second grader, third graders around these issues. And while we were doing it, um, one of the books that Jennifer brought up was this book around this idea of bitter and sweet around um, you know, having a difficult experience and how you, how you perceive it and how you frame it. And it just jumped out to me because I was like, oh, we're doing this little presentation on resiliency and overcome adversity. And I felt like this book really um, spoke to that uh, quite, quite uh, uh, profoundly in that sense. And so I thought, you know what? Let me do something quite strange and read to a group of adults who um, <laughs> probably hadn't been read to in a while. Um, and then it was even funny thinking about the idea of reading to all, because I was like, oh my god, I have to read to all these adults, and there's probably English teachers in there, and if I mispronounce a word, and I'm like, and I read to my daughter, I get anxious, because she corrects me herself, and I think her mother reads better than me, and I, you know, so I went to my own little crazy process of like, am I really going to read to these people? And then I said, yes, I am. And um, then I said, so, yes, you are too. Yes, right, that's right. And, and Chrissy and Carol encouraged me and said, let's do it. So here we are. So the name of this book is Bitter and Sweet. And I'll try to make sure I let you all see the pictures, because the illustrations, uh, the, <laughs> the illustrations are quite impressive, supposedly. So I shouldn't say supposedly. I did read it. I did read it a couple times yesterday to make sure I could, I could do this. All right. So here we go. Hannah. Hannah. <laughs> look at me. Hannah didn't want to. Hannah didn't want to move. She loved her house with her wide porch, her neighborhood with flat streets, and that were perfect for bike riding and her school with all of her friends. So here's Hannah, and looking at her house and her friends lovingly. Okay, let me see. But her father had a job in a new town, 
Almost every change has come hard, has some hard parts and some nice parts, her grandmother said when Hannah called to tell her the news. I was, I was scared when my family left the old country, but we made a new life and I made new friends. Definitely something bitter, but even more sweet. So here's grandma remembering the move. Hannah tried to think about the good things that the move might bring. She tried, to, she tried like her grandmother, to think of sweetness. But, her family prepared, as, but as her family prepared to leave, she could only feel the bitter. She cried salty tears when she hugged her friends goodbye and when her teacher took all her artwork down from the classroom walls. Her tummy felt tight as she helped her parents pack up her room and saw the boxes put into the big truck. Some bitter, but even more sweet, she heard her grandmother saying. Should we get out the window? Grandma must be wrong, Hannah thought as she watched the town where she was born disappear from sight. There was nothing sweet about leaving everything I knew. Soon the family was in their new home, in their new town. Hannah's bed didn't fit, fit nearly neatly by the window. Her artwork looked lonely on the walls. The new house was on the hill, which was not easy for bike riding, and the porch was smaller. Only the bitter, Hannah said. When their, when their first week neared, to e neared its end, Hannah watched her mother light the Shabbat candles. She was surprised by how nice the new house looked in the soft light. As she tasted the sweet grape juice, she remembered her grandmother's words, some bitter and some sweet. But still, Hannah wondered whether she would ever feel the sweet the same way that she had before. The next morning, there was a knock on the door. A girl who appeared to be about Hannah's age stood on the narrow porch, holding a small bag. Hi, I'm Maya, she said, handing Hannah the bag. I live down the street. Hannah looked inside and saw cocoa powder. It makes the best hot chocolate, Maya promised, as she waved goodbye. Thank you, Hannah called, feeling better. Then she had, a, then she had in a long time as she watched Maya head home. Hannah went inside to heat up some milk. She carefully added the tablespoon of cocoa powder and stirred until the mixture was silky smooth. Then she took a big, rich sip. Patui! The, the brown liquid flew out of her mouth. It's bitter, Hannah cried, just like everything else. Oh, boy, poor Hannah. The next day at school, Hannah tried to avoid Maya, but at recess, Maya ran up to her. I forgot to tell you, Maya said. You have to add sugar to the cocoa. <laughs> Otherwise, it's bitter, Hannah said, finishing Maya's sentence. Hannah raced home after school to try again. She heated the milk and added the cocoa. But this time, she also put a big heaping tablespoon of sugar. Mmm, she said, taking a sip. It wasn't bitter anymore. But still, something was missing. 
Hannah looked out the window. She ran out the door, biked down the street, biked down the hill, and knocked on Maya's door. Want to come over for some hot chocolate, she asked. Sure, Maya replied. Let's drink it on your porch. You have such a nice one. That night, Hannah called her grandmother. I thought it was only bitter here, Hannah said. And did you find the sweet, her grandmother asked. Oh, Grandma, Hannah said. You can't just find it. You have to add it yourself. <laughs> and then there's a little note that I like from the author. It says, in writing this story, I was inspired by the wisdom of many Jewish traditions that contain elements of both sweet and bitter, or happy and sad. While use of the phrase bitter and sweet is my own way of acknowledging this duality in everyday life, Judaism and Jewish, Jewish teachings provide many wonderful ways to recognize that life holds some of both. In Jewish tradition, many happy moments are marked with something sweet. Sweet wine or grape juice is used to welcome Shabbat on Friday nights, and Rosh Hashanah apples are dipped in honey for a sweet, for a sweet New Year. At the same time, Judaism does not shy away from acknowledging the difficulties of life. During the Passover Seder, even as the joy of freedom is being celebrated, bitter herbs are eaten to remind all of the bitterness of slavery. At the end of a beautiful wedding, the groom breaks the glass as a reminder both of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and the fragility of love. Then, right after the, right after the glass is broken, guests shower the couple with words of mazel tov, an expression of heartfelt congratulations returning at the end of the ceremony to the sweet. While Judaism acknowledges that life is indeed filled with moments of both bitter and sweet, it also teaches an abiding sense of hope and obligation to celebrate the good and be part of creating the sweet. So there's a few things that, that jumped out to me about this book. Um, one about the value of just using literature to help your children understand certain issues and deal with certain issues. I mean, I think what we've all come to realize is sometimes for children, and even for us adults, um, directly speaking to some issue that you're dealing with is a little too overwhelming. And so it's a little hard to acknowledge, oh yeah, I have an issue with you know, sharing, or whatever it may be, and you're like, that's not me. So that's where you gotta go to the book sometimes. And, and so children, is, I think, are really much more able to hear lessons and stories a lot of times through literature. So I thought it'd be kind of fun, once again, I mean, this is something that we can, we, we will be reading to you know, kindergartens and first graders and, and able to have a really nice, rich conversation. But another piece that I really loved about this book was it has so many different parts of what we are, we're going to be talking about and what we are talking about when it comes to really resiliency. Um, at first, it talks about the grandmother who shares her story about, hey, when I came over to the, from the old country, it was hard, but we overcame it. And there's some really neat research about sharing your family history and story with your children. So you want to tell your children about what your grandparents went and went through, your great-grandparents went through. And you want to share the struggles and the, and the successes because basically there's like three narratives. There's everything was great and we always did great. Everything was horrible and we never, 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 things never worked out for us. And then there's the up and down. We had our struggles, but we overcame them. We had our struggles and we overcame them. And if you can give the, that, the, share those stories with your children, it creates a sense of resiliency in the sense that it makes them feel like they've, they come from a lineage of folks who have overcome things and had struggles. And it was actually pretty neat. They did this research right before 9-11, and they were able to then uh, go back to those children that had been a part of this, this study and, and, and you know, retest them and recheck them. And they found the ones who had that narrative of the difficulties of their, their grandparents and great-grandparents and those stories were, in a, were had a greater level of kind of overall health and well-being 
after 9-11. So um, I love that the book you know, mentioned that and spoke to that and touched on that. Um, obviously, there's the piece of, once again, just this idea of um, most situations have a, you know, there's pros and cons in life, and, and there's going to have some, there's going to be areas in life where things are a little difficult, uh, be it leaving your home, but there's always something that you can, there's a way, there's all, it's all about how you perceive it. It's all about um, what you're looking for in terms of other opportunities to see some of the, the attributes and the benefits of, of a situation, even as one as difficult as leaving your home that you grew up in, in your whole life and, and the school and your friends. Um, there's a piece about the friend coming and sharing the cocoa. And there's a lot of uh, research around the value of relationships in terms of resiliency and the importance of um, engaging relationships, but also um, giving in relationships. And that idea of, uh, there's also been some really neat research around this idea that we get more from giving than we do from receiving. And so that's that, the friend who gave, you know, came and gave her the bag of cocoa, and that's her going back and um, inviting her friend back to the, to, to the house to, to, to drink the cocoa and so forth. So, um, it was pretty neat, I thought, this idea that within this, there was different little components that really speak to um, you know, the, the, the attributes to how you develop uh, resiliency. So with that, I think we're going to do a little exercise, right? Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to ask you to do a little exercise, a little reflection. And then as you do it, after you do it, I'm going to ask you to turn to the person next to you and kind of share. So whatever you're thinking of. Make sure you're willing to share it with your person. Ah, <laughs> perfect. Okay, so bring to mind a stressful experience from your past in which you persevered or learned something important. Take a few moments to think about what that experience taught you about your strengths and how to cope with stress. Um, and then it says the time. Okay, and so think about these few questions as you're thinking about that. What, do, uh, what did you do that helped you get through it? What personal resources did, did you draw on? And what strengths did you use? Did you seek out information, advice, or any other kind of support? What did, you, what did this experience teach you about how to deal with adversity? How did this experience make you stronger? So if you could just reflect for a second around some experience that you've had that initially was, was pretty difficult and, and, and hard, but you feel like you're able to overcome it and what you gained from that, that'd be great. And I'll just give you a couple minutes. Thank you, thank you. I'm glad there was rich conversation, it sounded like. Um, would anyone like to share any experience of what you all were talking about or some insight to overcoming yeah. adversity and developing some resiliency? It can't be worse than getting upset over a cat. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's right, over broken glass. So a commonality between the three of us was the kind of the desire at first to handle it all yourself. Like, okay. I, I can handle this, I can cope with all these difficult feelings. Mm -hmm. And then in the um, stepping forward part, the healing part of it was, you know, connection yeah. with other people. Connecting and, like, and letting them come in for right. that right. issue. Of right. And would you, would you be able to say what, per, what was that initial instinct to wanting to keep it in-house and not? Shit, was there? Well, we were thinking about Make yourself, okay, thank you. Yeah, and so think about that for our kids, right? I mean, we often tell our kids, oh, tell somebody. How could you not have told somebody that you were struggling? Why didn't you let a teacher know? Why didn't you let your friend know? And it's like, we all do the same thing, right? Who, being vulnerable is hard. In our culture, unfortunately, we see that as weakness. 
um, right? We see that as um, what's wrong with you, you know, man up, buckle up, you know, whatever, whatever. We have all kinds of silly phrases about handling things on your own, right? And, and not showing vulnerability. So just a, a perfect example of recognizing our children instinctually might go there. And that's not only for those reasons, but you know, feeling exposed is a hard thing. Um, feeling vulnerable is a hard thing. And so trying to remember that and being patient with our kids around uh, uh, validating that. And, and that's one of the things I also want to talk about it with this sense of resiliency, because we're going to go over some of these uh, kind of strategies to help. But I think the most important thing is validating one's struggle, validating one's fear, one's anxiety, and at the same time, and, and not but, but and with that idea of saying, and we're going to get through it, and I'm going to be here to help you get through it. Um, there's, there's some really neat research around there's three types of stress. There's like positive stress, um, um, toxic stress, and oh my gosh. Thank you. <laughs> Nothing beauty about PowerPoint. Um, but, but the idea of the positive stress is you can kind of remove yourself from it. So it's like you want to, you have to go do a play or you have a game. And you know, it's stressful before the performance, but at the same time, if, we, if you really wanted to be like, right, I'm not going in the game or I'm not going on the stage. Um, so there's a sense of control and, and, and um, autonomy that you can have within that stress. Uh, the tolerable stress is, is, you'd be surprised, it's pretty, it's pretty intense stuff. It could be a divorce, it could be um, even some uh, mistreatments, you know, kind of bullying that's going on in school. But the big issue with the tolerable stress is, one, that it's limited and it's not constant and all the time and, and, and frequently every day, all day, and that there's an adult presence. And there's someone who's saying, I can help, we're going to help you get through this. And so uh, with the divorce, it's this idea that the parents recognize that it's hard, and they're saying, hey, we're going to help you move through this. It's with the bullying, they're going to say, we know this is really hard, and we're going to utilize our resources and make sure that we're on top of that, and teachers are watching, and, 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 and uh, going to support you, and I'm, we're here to support you, and we're going to strategize. So it's really that idea of this is hard, and we know divorce is hard, and being mistreated by your friends is hard, and we have people in your community, in your space, who are going to help you navigate it. And we're going to collectively get through this. So that when, when that is present, that tolerable stress is, is one where actually uh, resiliency is developed in that sense of, hey, this was, really this was a really tough experience, and we were able to move through it. It's the toxic stress, which is the one that we hear about all the time when you talk about stress and you know, how the cortisol, you know, it, it, is, 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 it hurts our cells and causes high blood pressure and all these other things. And that's this idea that it's, it's ongoing, it's, it's, there's no adult presence, um, and it's just kind of ever-present. And so that's when that idea of all the research that we hear about how bad stress is, um, is, is that's what we're talking about mainly, that toxic stress. And I'd, um, I'd add on the idea that when we're helping our children navigate these stresses, we don't have to accomplish all of that at once. So it may be in a particular situation that one of the best things that you can offer is to share, oh, you know, when I was in fifth grade, I remember this being really hard too, and giving a little personal anecdote. Yeah. It might be that the best thing in that situation is not a personal share, maybe you don't have a connection or you choose in that moment that another strategy is to help your child learn who to turn to. Oh, it really sounds like this is tricky at school, and I know I'm not there every day, but your teacher is and they can probably know more about what's happening with the other student or this and helping to coach your child to have that conversation that they need to have to advocate for themselves a little bit. So I would encourage just you to remember that we want to help with all of these individual strategies <coughs> to help them build the resilience, but like anything, it's not going to all happen at the same time. 
And it may be that in one situation, you focus on one narrow piece of it, and you can walk away saying, okay, I really, that was, that's what came out of that. And there were some areas where I had to do a little bit more hand-holding to get through it, but this one chunk they were able to take ownership over, and that's okay. We still get to be the parent, and we still get to support them in it, but it's how we choose to exert those different levels of support when they're kind of navigating that situation. Yeah. And, and, I, and I can't say enough about the idea of that self-disclosure, and obviously it has to be developmentally appropriate, but the more I think we can show our kids that that's part of being a human being, and you see, you know, I think sometimes our, our kids see us and they think, oh, you're so accomplished, and you've done this, and you, you've done that, and they think we're perfect, and we just kind of popped out, and we were arrived. And I think let them know, like, no, this was a process, and I struggled, and I doubted myself, and I had to overcome these things, and, and here we are, and it goes back to that idea of, knowing your history and the narrative of, of um, what's going on. Um, just the other day, I was sharing with our oldest daughter how at one years ago, um, our daughter got her finger caught in one of those strollers. And you know how those strollers, like you hear about those you know, horror stories about like you lose fingers and so forth, and her finger was stuck in there. And I remember we were in New York, we were in Brooklyn visiting my, my niece, or my cousin, um, and, um, and I panicked. I just kind of lost it, like I saw her hand in there. I, looked at it, turned around, and just like ran around in circles literally for like 30 seconds a minute. And Michelle like came over and she like, you know, got it out and so forth. But I just remember I was like so embarrassed and I was so ashamed of myself because I like lost it and I didn't keep my composure. And, uh, and I was sharing with, with my daughter the other day and, you know, she was mocking me and laughing at me, but, but it was more like to let her know like, yeah, we have our moments and there's times that I'm, you know, I can handle it and I, I have it together. But we all have those moments where we just, you know, you, you, for whatever reason, it, it goes away. And uh, you got to forgive yourself and, and have some self-compassion. And we talk about that there, uh, up there around this idea of self-compassion. But uh, sharing that with, with them and my, you know, share that with the younger one as well, I feel like is important to let them see once again that we're human. And, uh, you know, we're all just trying to navigate and figure it out. And also that idea that it really does take a village. So I know in our own house there, we've had stuff come up with our boys. And it may not be something that really I could give them an example of or connect with them on, but my husband may have been able to. Grandparents have been really incredible resources for talking about their own experiences. So I think that's the other piece too, is that idea that it's okay to help um, encourage your children just to kind of hear that narrative from other people and to yeah. Kasu's point, even people that they look up to. Um, you know, there's also this idea, Kasu's talked about this idea of like using, you know, text and using stories um, you know, think about some of the greatest athletes that are out there and the things that maybe they overcame or the things yeah. that they navigate. Um, yeah. You know, if there's somebody, a particular somebody that your child looks up to, yeah. you know, getting that biography and tackling it together and reading through it together and sort of talking about what that particular individual had to overcome and do. Again, those are just other ways to help that narrative sort of play out in a way that they might be a little bit more open to sort of taking in the information versus it being sort of, oh, this is what you should do in this situation, mm -hmm. and this is how you should do that situation, and just providing them sort of just different opportunities to take it in. Yeah, there's some great videos that I, I try to find uh, and use a lot with the kids that are, it's, it's really neat. There's just a lot more uh, athletes and celebrities coming out and, and sharing their struggles and their vulnerabilities, and it's, it's great. Um, there's podcasts, and, but there's a ton of videos on YouTube that you could like Google and, and, and talk about. And there's, um, yeah, there's different celebrities talking about their struggles with mental health. And um, one of the activities we do with the eighth grade when we do a health program is I have a list of all these 
you know, very, very accomplished people. And, and, and we, I said, you know, what do you, what do you think is, is they, these people have in common? And, you know, they're like, they're famous, they're successful, and, and they all have mental health issues. And so just like normalizing, like, look how successful these folks are. And we all look up to them and we feel like they're, you know, very, very uh, accomplished in their craft. And they dealt with these issues as well. And so once again, just normalizing this process. Um, Should we so, do that yeah. one last, we have one last slide we wanted so, to, to show you Did everyone you see this? This is just some different things to help. Gratitude journal, I think, you know, just acknowledge, I, you know, it doesn't have to be long-winded, just having to help your kids maybe three things they're grateful for to start their day, to end their day. Just once again, um, sometimes we get kind of that uh, um, narrow focus around what's struggling, and what, we're, what we're dealing with that is kind of tough, and the gratitude kind of helps just kind of bring that bigger picture of those things still be, to be grateful about. Uh, perspective taking, um, it's the idea of like I, I sometimes have a problem and I just pretend like I throw it in the sky and put, imagine it in the sky and just something really big space or the ocean or um, you know drop a little uh, the idea of the metaphor of putting a little piece of ink in a, in a big bowl and just initially it's big and then it kind of diffuses so there's little images you can help your kid kind of visualize to help put it in perspective or, or imagine that and the rest I guess is pretty self-explanatory but um, this idea of helping your kid kind of recognize when they're, once again, focusing on things that they can't do. You know, a lot of times I think here at Foot, you have some kids who are really accomplished and kind of high flyers in certain areas, and so they're always comparing themselves. And so I think the Velcro, the positive is, hey, everyone's different learners, but think about the things that you have um, accomplished and done. And, and, and even if it's not maybe in this math, uh, you know, forum or domain, think about what's been over here. And so just kind of helping them recognizing their strengths and qualities um, and, and bringing those to their attention. Because I think we often have that negativity bias. We're always looking at our deficits. And so um, just kind of reminding them of, of also what they've accomplished. So before we take questions, we wanted to circle back to this idea that what does the research show us about developing resilience in our children? Um, and out of that research, there was an article back in 2014 um, that talked about this idea that there are actually things that we're doing that limit our children's potential when it comes to how we help to develop resilience in them. Um, and this is more talking about that idea where we started this, this cultural shift. You know, it's we, we're hesitant to help our kids experience risk. We rescue them quickly. Um, we often rave too easily, and we don't share our past mistakes. And I think we've sort of navigated and woven through most of these in our conversation this morning. Um, but you know, Kasuth and I just thought it was a, a helpful reminder. I know it's something that I um, often think about and check myself with. Right. Um, and it's sort of always a delicate balance. There's never sort of an easy. This is you know the right line to walk. It obviously in different situations sort of curves and swifts around a little bit. Um, but this idea that just to be mindful of these, the balance in your own life with your children with these um, particular areas. Yeah, and I, and I would just add, I think, to, to piggyback on what Chris was saying, I mean, I think we all recognize, I, I know for me it's probably the hardest thing to do, to be quite honest with you, in terms of there's nothing harder, more uh, difficult for me to see my daughters go through something difficult and having to witness that and sit with them through that. And so, um, just the other day we were sitting, I was in a parent conference with, with, for my six-year-old and she was talking about her reading and, you know, some struggles and my heart, I could feel my heart like starting to palpitate as she was talking about like the reading difficulties and it was like, ah, oh, why is she going to think of her peers and I know she's going to think she's inferior and it was like, my mind started, and then I was like, alright, calm down, um, this is just part of learning, this is going to make her better, this is going to, she's going to have to push through it. But your instinct is this, this fear of, you know, difference and fear of exclusion, this fear of feeling 
inferior or whatever it may be. And so I think it's, it's a natural um, place that we go, but if we can catch ourselves and remind ourselves of all the different stories you all were just telling each other about, what you, what, how you grew and what you learned as a result of those hardships and as a result of that adversity, I think, can kind of calm us down when we realize our kids, that's the same for our children. And it's normal for them to feel all of those feelings too. I think sometimes we wonder, you know, as we open up conversation about sort of the range of how emotions can impact, you know, learning, um, we're quick to think that we have to fix it right in that moment. But I, I come back to the idea and I talk with the faculty a lot about this. It's okay to sit in the icky for a little while. It's okay for our kids to sit in the icky for a little while. We don't want to leave them and let them flounder around, obviously, but um, it's completely normal for them to have to feel some of these uncomfortable situations. Um, not only because it will help benefit their learning and sort of their drive in the long run, but it'll also help with that resilience element as well. Foot Podcasts are a production of The Foot School, an independent school for grades K through 9 located in New Haven, Connecticut. Visit us online at footschool.org.